I'm John DiLiberto, and you're hearing the Echoes podcast from PRX. Today, I've got an icon of Echoes and one of the latest in the ambient piano movement. Henrik Lindstrand plays keyboards in the relatively heavy rock band Kashmir, but over the last couple of years, he's retreated to his grand piano and a bit of processing to create some beautiful ambient landscapes full of subtle melodies and sonic details. Then we'll hear from the 11th icon of Echoes, Mike Oldfield. He is much more than tubular bells, but we'll hear the story behind that epic and groundbreaking recording, including comments from Brian Eno. Before we get to that, let me tell you about Echoes Online, our streaming subscription music service. You can get all 10 hours of Echoes programs we produce each week, a backlog of some three months worth of material, plus exclusive online-only streams. And you can do it all on your free Echoes app. If the public stations in your area are clueless or you want a more convenient listening time, like whenever you want, find out about Echoes Online at echoes.org. And now, let's hear how to tinkle the ivories and hear the tinkle ambiently with Henrik Lindstrand. Piano has taken an interesting turn in the 21st century. In the previous century, musicians, producers, and engineers tried to get the cleanest, most pristine sound they could. This aesthetic is exemplified by ECM Records and their recordings of Keith Jarrett, Paul Blay, and Todd Gustafson. But that aesthetic is out the window in the 21st century, where a certain breed of pianists not only don't care about extraneous noise, they use it as part of their process. I've been fascinated by quirkiness and <laughs> things that are really close and honest in its expression. So when I made the first album, I, I was deliberately not particularly interested in a clean sound. I was more focused on the, the actual expression of the instrument. And if that meant creaky or, you know, if you could hear the pedals, noises, and even noises from the surroundings, and uh, perhaps a little bit of, of breath, it, it was okay to me, as long as it was felt like an honest expression. That's Henrik Lindstrad, and he's just completed a trilogy of solo albums, Lekan, Natrasen, and Nordum. Thank you. 
Born in 1974 in Sweden, Henrik Lindstrad is a conservatory-trained musician, but he started investigating other music forms at an early age because he didn't like reading sheet music. My main hurdle was that I had really difficulty reading sheet music. That was a weakness of mine. I played most of the music, even the classical repertoire I was playing by, by ear. So as the repertoire got more and more difficult, I really had to struggle with the classical tunes. And therefore it was more tempting to start playing more improvised music. So you took the easy way out, huh? I took the easy way out, you could say so. <laughs> He spent most of the century playing rock music with a Danish group called Kashmir, named after the Led Zeppelin song. This is a modern rock group in the Radiohead vein. You might not think this sound is related to someone who makes solo piano music, but Lindstrom sees a through line. To be honest, I think there is definitely a red thread for me making this now after playing uh, many years in Kashmir. I learned so much during that period and uh, we really shared the same curiosity for making musical sounds and uh, you know, investigating new ways of building soundscapes so I don't think that I had been able to make these albums if I hadn't played in Kashmir because that's sort of you know part of my musical journey and my, my DNA so to speak. Lindstrand went back to an even earlier time in his life for the inspiration of his first solo album, Laken. I was visiting my parents back home in, in Sweden, and uh, they still have that old piano that used to be my grandmother's. And uh, it's in terrible shape, by the way. It sounds awful, but I had taken three months out of the calendar, and I knew that I wanted to make an album. But I, I hadn't quite decided on how to make it and uh, all of a sudden it was so clear to me that while sitting down and, and, uh, and playing uh, on this horrible <laughs> piano <laughs> which is really old and ha hasn't been tuned for, for I don't know how long but it just felt so right to, to say okay this is it you know you need to go back yeah and try to create something out of this huh. well it seems like that old piano might be the perfect thing for the creaky piano sound yeah and i i recorded it also i did some samples with it so i have implemented it actually on on all three albums not so much on on album two or three but it is there briefly not standalone <laughs> but it i have used it on a couple of places Lindstrand's approach was pure on one hand and experimental on another. 
On the pure side, every sound originates from Lindstrand actually playing the keys on the piano. When I finally got to the point that I knew I wanted to make a piano album and a solo piano album, uh, not using any other musicians, I also made the decision that I wasn't allowed to use anything else but the sounds from the piano. And that felt so natural, actually, because and it gave me a creative boost because I knew that I, you know, I, I, I narrowed down the, the creative frame, so to speak, and uh, I had to find out how to produce, for instance, ambient textures, and I had to find out how to create microbeats with sounds from the piano. It's not strictly solo piano in Keith Jarrett and George Winston sense. Lindstrand overdubbed, looped and processed the sound in very subtle ways. I think perhaps I can divide the material in, in two piles, where one pile is more play through traditional compositions like Flora and Peel. And there are a couple of songs that are quite basic in its structure. But then we have the other pile with perhaps more experimenting methods where I have dubbed myself uh, numerous times and, you know, built bigger soundscapes. And so that has been sort of two sides of, of the albums. Lindstrand's titles are very poetic, if you understand Swedish and a little Danish. Unlike the names from most instrumental recordings, these weren't conjured up after he recorded the work. His titles and their meaning actually inspired the music. First of all, I'm not a lyricist. That has not been my way of expressing myself. But I use my imagination and the pictures in my head a lot when composing. And uh, when I started on the first album, Leken, I since I was going back to my, my roots with the piano and all this, I, I also started thinking about different settings from my childhood, different places and people that had meant a lot to me. So I, I got a lot of inspiration out of thinking of, you know, a summer day in the mid-80s or, or whatever it was. I mean, it's, of course, fragments. It's not necessarily very, you know, concrete all of the time but it can be a different area of a forest or you know a lake uh, and then memories that I associate with that.
that inspiration flow through all three recordings. So I, I used that, instead of writing lyrics about it, I tried to just be intuitive uh, when playing the piano while thinking about this. That felt so good working in, in that way. It was actually the first time I, I worked in that way. So and that's probably also why the second album felt so natural, just to continue on the same path. And, and then the third album also felt natural to keep on doing because I, I, I felt I wasn't finished with all these uh, sort of imagined pictures from, yeah, from my life, basically. pictures in Henrik Lindstrand's mind on his trilogy of albums Laken, Natterson, and Nordum, the last two released on the one little independent label. I'll have a link for Henrik Lindstrand's Lenken, Natrassen, and Nordum albums in the posting for this podcast. And now, another icon of Echoes as we count up the 30 that you chose for our first 30 years. This is the 11th icon, Mike Oldfield. As we celebrate Mike Oldfield's anointment as the 11th of 30 Icons of Echoes, I want to take you back to a mini-documentary we produced on the 40th anniversary of Tubular Bells. In the 1970s, you couldn't escape these familiar notes from Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. It was featured in the movie The Exorcist, became a top 10 hit, and was mimicked on TV commercials for everything from tiny time pills to milk. Well, I mean, there was a time where you, you, I couldn't go anywhere without hearing that, you know, playing it in supermarkets, and that's how he got the Muzak tag. That's Mike Oldfield. He's a shy and retiring person with whom fame did not sit easily. He lives in the Bahamas now, but in 1987, he was sitting in the breezeway of his mansion in Oxfordshire, England. Rolling his own cigarettes, Oldfield's pale skin, red encircled eyes, and hesitant, sullen speech give the impression of a hermit lost to the world. He was only 14 years old in 1967 when he formed a group with his older sister, Sally. The band was called Sally Angie, and they released one record, Children with Son. Oldfield went on to play with eccentric British rocker Kevin Ayers. This is a song from the bottom of a well. There are things down here I'm going to try to tell. 
While he was with Kevin Ayers, Oldfield began making his own music. Using a single stereo tape machine, he managed to overdub instruments in his Tottenham flat to create a demo version of Tubular Bells, which sounded like this. Oldfield tried to get the band interested in his new creation. I do remember uh, one of the sessions in Abbey Road. I wanted to play my demos. The engineer, you know, quite dismissively put them on the tape recorder and they all sat around like drumming their fingers as what's this rubbish. <laughs> but one member of the group, the late classical composer David Bedford, heard something the others didn't. He would play demos and everybody else would say, that sounds awfully boring. I say that sounds great. Why don't you listen to a bit of Delius or Vaughan Williams or something? Encouraged by Bedford, Oldfield brought his tape to Tom Newman. He was an engineer working at the Manor, the studios of Virgin Records, even before they actually had any records out. Sitting on his houseboat on the Thames River in 1987, Newman recalled his first meeting with Oldfield. Michael came up to me as I was fiddling behind the mixer and gave me this nasty scruffy little three inch reel of tape. He was mad as a hatter in those days and said, this is very, very good, you must listen to it, he said, please listen to this and he thrust this tiny dirty little tape into my hand I said, yes, all right, Michael, fine, yeah. And he was kind of constantly almost on the verge of tears because he was under such kind of mental torment at the time. He couldn't handle himself or, or at least he couldn't handle his relationship with the planet and the people and all that you know he was having a terrible time uh, yeah I did remember you know, this little long-haired bearded musician I used to be you know so unhappy and so confused about everything <laughs> I felt a bit uh, you know sympathetic to my teenage self <laughs> and I only, only was happy when I was making music because of felt safe in, and lived in a world of music. I think that's what made it so powerful. The sounds were more real, more real to me than you know, real life, real physical life. Tom Newman heard was the beginning of Tubular Bells. He convinced Richard Branson and Simon Draper to let him record the album as the very first release of Virgin Records. Oldfield aspired to the sweep and depth he loved in classical music, so Tubular Bells contained one composition spanning both sides of an album with no vocals. That was unheard of for a rock record in 1973. But then Oldfield thought of it more as classical music. David Bedford says it was classical music, to a point. Yes, um, but it would have been his perception of classical music at that time, when he was a 16-year-old, which was pretty rudimentary, in that most of Tubular Bells consist of a tune, then another tune, then another tune, and then maybe two of the tunes together, but no, none of the concept of development that is inherent in classical style or tradition. So, in a sense, it, it is classical music played on rock instruments. 
but only in a very limited sense. So when it's transferred to full symphony orchestra, it sounds a bit peculiar. Nevertheless, in 1975, Bedford arranged an orchestral version of Tubular Bells. Now with a studio at his disposal, Mike Oldfield set about making Tubular Bells, trying to create the electric symphony in his head as a one-man band. All reports from 1972 indicate that Oldfield was tormented while recording the album. Engineer Tom Newman. It was kind of almost too much for him at times because he, he was very, very nervous and he'd go into these bouts of hideous depression and kind of uh, inability to communicate. And the only way around him at that time to get him to do anything or to get him to kind of be communicative enough to, to work with was to uh, take him down the pub and get him pissed. So we'd go down the pub and drink Guinness and then we'd go back and record great mountains of stuff, maybe for 24 hours at a stretch. Yeah, but we original was, you know, a marathon, one week, and all of the first side in one week, you know, because that's the, that's the only time they gave me. And uh, there's over 1,800 individual overdubs in that one week. Tubular Bells was a studio creation. Oldfield played 16 different instruments on it and the studio itself became an instrument with all kinds of effects. When the late Vivian Stanshaw announces double speed guitar on the instrumental roll call crescendo, he doesn't mean Oldfield is playing really fast. Double speed guitar. Make the studio really talk, you know. It wasn't just a question of sitting around playing music and recording it. You know. Used everything from um, certain techniques, doing things at different speeds and backwards, and and actually in real time changing the speed of the tape while we're playing. Two slightly distorted guitars. You know, and using acoustics like in bathrooms and around the house, and using echoes. You know, it was so beautifully put together that that tubular bells. You know, every little second been gone into with a microscope. In 2003, when he was talking about his Tubular Bells remake, he pulled out his original Telecaster guitar. Well, I've just um, taken this old Telecaster off the wall because that was the original Tubular Bells guitar, and um, you know, I want to reproduce as many of the sounds as possible. Plucking out notes on his unamplified guitar, Oldfield creates some familiar guitar harmonics. That's it. part two of Tubular Bells. Tubular Bells was influenced as much by Hank Marvin and the Shadows as it was by classical music. But this section, called Harmonics, and the opening notes of Tubular Bells show the impact of more modern classical music, in particular, the American minimalism of Terry Riley's A Rainbow in Curved Air. 
Yeah, well, Terry Riley, Rainbow and Curved Air was a popular album around at that time when he had this ostinato thing going on. Yeah, I used to listen to that. In the way that influenced me with the beginning of Tubular Bells. It's quite a simple trick, you know. You hear it a lot in film scores nowadays. <laughs> Especially on piano, the re repetitious ostinato phrase with the hammering on the thumb. Tubular Bells went on to massive success. It won gold in the U.S. and was on the British charts for 279 weeks. Oldfield also won a Grammy Award for it. It's still often best known as the theme for The Exorcist in 1973. Like Vangelis's Chariots of Fire, Tubular Bells has been both a source of acclaim and criticism, imitation, and parody. In 1993, the ambient group called The Orb remixed Tubular Bells 2, which featured the signature theme. Chris Weston, known as Thrash, didn't want to use any of Oldfield's music at all in the remix, but The Orb's Alex Patterson had more respect for it. Yeah, I mean, Chris really didn't even want to put that on. <laughs> That's the difference in age, you see. You see I'm, I'm 33, Chris is 21. He's looking at things saying, Load of old cacks, you know, the riff of Tubular Bell. And I'm thinking, this is semi sacred sort of thing, it's got to be put on. Brian Eno is known as the ambient pioneer and producer of bands like U2 and Coldplay, but in 1973 he was playing art rock songs with Roxy Music. He says a Tubular Bells shifted the ground between contemporary classical music and pop. Actually, I was very pleased that a record that defied everything that record companies were saying at the time could be a big success. It was long, didn't have a lead singer. <laughs> um, musically, it didn't surprise me. You know, I was, I was drawing from the same tradition that that came from, which was, I suppose, really the Terry Riley world of um, new tonal music. It, it didn't add anything conceptually to that tradition, but what it really did add to was the notion of where that stuff could sit culturally. You know, it wasn't sort of a recherche California minimalist thing any longer. It suddenly was something that loads and loads of people liked. Mike Oldfield has recorded six iterations of Tubular Bells, the original, the orchestral Tubular Bells, Tubular Bells 2, Tubular Bells 3, the Millennium Bell, and Tubular Bells 2003. On the Echo's website, I've got a list of the 10 essential Mike Oldfield albums, and I rank all six Bell recordings as well, just for kicks. It's on the Echoes website and in the Echoes app. Just scroll down to the reviews and commentary section. I'll also have a link for it in the posting for this podcast. Next week on the Echoes podcast, the political cut-ups of Wax Taylor and the 12th icon of Echoes, Moby. I'm John DiLiberto. This has been the Echoes podcast from PRX. See you next week, tonight on the radio somewhere in the country, or at Echoes Online right now or whenever you want. <laughs>